Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Welcome to The Times. To find out more, head to thetimes.co.uk. Every goal, every game, everywhere. The Times and the Sunday Times. Now with goals. Hello and welcome to The Game, the one and only football podcast from The Times. I am excited because I am joined by Alison Rudd, Tony Evans, and Rory Smith is here, but he's not here. He's down the line. Uh, he might be a little muffled, but he's still taking time out of his very busy day to be with us. So thank you, Rory. We're coming to you on a Tuesday, as you may have noticed, because yesterday was a, a bank holiday in England, and our producer, Dave McGuire, decided to take his day off to go walking in the countryside. Coming up on the show, we'll be talking Spurs Man City, discussing the Newcastle saga, a little bit of our friend Nigel Pearson, everything else that happened on the bank holiday weekend. But first, let's talk Chelsea, who are your Premier League champions. Hasn't missed one in the Premier League yet. Oh, he has now! Spironi with the save! Hazard reacts quicker than anybody, and much to his relief, finds the net to give Chelsea the lead. Now, there's a, a, a huge surprise, Tony. They beat Crystal Palace 1-0. We, we saw it coming. There, there's, this end, there's this debate about whether they're boring and so on, which personally I don't get. Judging from what you wrote, you don't really understand it either. You know what? If you think Chelsea are boring, you don't understand football. You know, go to the circus, watch juggling. You want entertainment? It, it's ridiculous. They, they play great football. No, when did entertainment creep into football? The reality is that sport, and sport's a contest between two sets of people, two people, two sets of people. There's only one one thing that should be the focus of it and the two wins and now everyone talks of entertainment but as it happens this Chelsea side are very entertaining they've got Eden Hazard they've got Cesc Fabregas I'll tell you what I could be entertained by Costa all day and all night he's brilliant to watch and people say they're boring you know what they just say Chelsea it's a default setting and I can understand that Alison it does seem to me that this season, right up until um, you can put the cutoff where you want to, right? some people put it at the Swansea game at some point in January. Until that point, Chelsea scored tons of goals. They were solid defensively. They did give up some goals, although I think, again, that was inflated by the by the Spurs result. I thought they were attacking. They took lots of shots. They had a lot of the ball, played very well, and were fun to watch. They started it all off with um, one of the goals of the season against Burnley, where you, you, you will not see a more delicate, beautifully contrived pass from Fabregas through to Schürrle for that sort of infamous goal. 
they kept up that sort of application where it, it was you know it was in, it was intelligent football and it was thoughtful and it was attractive to watch i think that i think the crucial point was the defeat to spurs because i think chelsea this is new year's day it's hard to know exactly what Mourinho was hoping for from that but they were more open than they would normally be in a game against a team that was a, a threat and um, they were slightly humiliated and so I think from that point on more or less um, Mourinho decided let's let's just restrict the amount of um, space and movement and time on the ball we give the opposition let's not let's not flood forward too often because that there are far too many teams out there capable of hurting us. Let's just play it cautiously. And it is more football by numbers in the second half of the season, perhaps, but I agree with Tony completely. I think football by numbers is also attractive and interesting. So I think what happened with Chelsea, they went from being surprisingly aesthetically appealing to like watching some sort of whodunit and trying to work out what would happen. It was became sort of appealing and then tactical and both sides of the game are they're, they're there and they're they're good to have. Rory, is this thing with, with with Chelsea being seen as as boring? Is that kind of magnified because the United and Arsenal games are are so fresh in our minds? I think there's no question that all of the other teams in the Premier League are, are, are wonderful examples of exactly how to play football. I I, I agree with with Tony Allison. I, I think there's um, it's, it's it's kind of a weird thing. I, I think Jonathan Northcroft, our colleague from the Sunday Times, said the other day that to an extent it's all come about this this debate's kind of gained traction because. The season, from the point of view of the title race, has been over for so long. And the Arsenal fans chant boring, boring Chelsea at Chelsea. And we all need something to talk about. We've built it into something that it, it really isn't. Like, yeah, they're not boring. We all know they're not boring. They're, they're successful. Success is never boring. They're not particularly beautiful in the, in the way that we think of beautiful football. But then beauty's in the eye of the beholder, isn't it? A mate of mine and a mate of Tony's, Neil Atkinson, always says that he hates it when the weatherman comes on and says it's bad news for tomorrow, it's going it's to rain. Some people like the rain. It's mm. not for, for us to assume that everyone wants everyone to play in this one specific kind of Guardiola way. And I agree with what Alison said. I think Chelsea were, were excellent to watch for five months. And then Mourinho, he says because of injuries and suspensions, but I think it could well have been because of what happened at Spurs, decided to be more strategic and less artistic, and they're his words. But the only, the only thing that, that interests me, I think it was Tony who wrote it on Monday, was how they'll be remembered. Because I, I think there is a definite parallel between this Chelsea, Mourinho's Chelsea, and Reedy's Leeds, which is that they're respected and admired and feared, but I don't know whether people broadly wish them well. And whether that's their own fault or because of kind of the fractious nature of football support, I don't know. But I, I definitely think they're looked at in a different way to say... Vendors, great Arsenal teams that you know that, that won titles and did it playing very expansive football. I don't think they, they occupy the same place in our collective memory as those sides. But whether that's important or not, I don't know. Yeah, well, I mean, the thing with the the dislike towards Chelsea is on a variety of factors: Abramovich and his money, uh, the sense that they're a, you know sort of an upstart club, Mourinho, who is very divisive anyway, you know, and um, and people despise him. So all those things come together, and um, they've they've called them boring. You know, Leeds were dirty Leeds. People hated them because they they kicked you off the pitch. Chelsea are no worse in that area than anyone else. Probably Diego Costa aside, who's who's magnificently physical. I love it. I love it. People are predisposed to despise Chelsea. One other point on this whole boring thing, and you can substitute boring for for more defensive, which I think anybody would would admit is what Chelsea have been, perhaps since that the Newcastle defeat. Alison, I'm interested in it because I don't believe, and it might sound strange coming from an Italian, that defensive football works in the long run. This is very broadly speaking, and obviously you have to play to your strengths and whatever else, 
But generally, when you when you set up to be more defensive, um, when you set up to counterattack and set pieces and, and whatever, especially in England, there's variables you can't control. You can a refereeing error or whatever. You can give up a goal, and it's very difficult for a defensive team to transition to become a more attacking team. So I think it's self-defeating in the longer run. And I think to some degree, Mourinho, early in the season anyway, agreed with me. Because he did something this year, which tactically he's never done before. He signed Cesc Fabregas. He put him in that deep-lying playmaker position. If you look at the past, uh, whether at Real Madrid with, uh, with Kadir and Xabi Alonso, uh, whether at uh, Inter Milan with, uh, with Cambiaso and Motta, or even in his Chelsea side the first time around with Makaleli Nessian, he always generally had two physical ball winners. Here, he had a monster freak of nature in Nemanja Matic alongside Cesc Fabregas, who, wonderful as he is, he's still a little guy acting as a defensive playmaker. Did that show that, you know, uh, an evolution or at least a, a transition from Mourinho in the I summer? Think, I think it showed most of all just how awesome Matic is in that role and how awesome he was at it for mo- you know, until the whole team became tired. So what he figures Matic is there, so he's, I don't need to. He's one and a half, Matic he's one and a half, is- isn't he, <laughs> of, of men, really. Also, I think I agree with you, Gab, you're in the lap of the gods if you set up too defensively. But the beauty of Chelsea has been because they have so many exquisite players, they can afford to bide their time. They're sort of economical with their attractiveness. So they know when they break, it's going to yield something. You know, those those balls from Fabregas, that, those runs from Hazard, the finishing from Costa... It's it's the best there is. So you okay? You could argue it's still statistically a risk if you don't have as many attacks, and you shouldn't really have that many chances. But they they buy their time, and that's probably for the second half of the season. That's been what's nicest to watch about Chelsea is that uh oh they're going for it now, and it it happens. Well, the, that's the thing, Tony. Because I, I was sure when Cesc arrived, uh, or when they signed him, I was I was sure that Chelsea were going to play four three three, play um, Matic and Ramirez or Mikel, and Oscar would be in and out, you know, and Cesc would be there, but it would be a four three three. Instead, he didn't. He put he put Cesc in that what, position. Did that I, surprise you, or what, am I? I- I, I didn't think Fabregas would work in a Mourinho team, I'll be completely honest. I thought he was probably bought above Mourinho's head and this wasn't going to work. It's worked out beautifully, and why it's worked out is balance. They're a balanced side. It's not like Liverpool last year where it's like, you know, it's a charge of the light brigade, hope for the best, and hope they don't get into your earth ever. It's balanced, and the great managers, great teams with balance, and we haven't seen much of it in recent years. You know, it seems to be one... Defendants have forgotten ours. People are not interested in it. And when a team comes along and does this, it, it, it's actually more interesting than, say, Liverpool last year. They only had one sort of speed, you know, 90 miles an hour, and, and they were vulnerable. Watching Chelsea play is way more interesting. Right. What struck me about Mourinho, too, is that, you know, people, when he returned, there's the whole thing about coming home and whatever. But I'd argue that he returned to this Chelsea side kind of from a position of, of, of weakness. Yeah, of course, he was still Mourinho, but he'd been through the traumatic Real Madrid experience. Unlike 2004, he wasn't joining a club with uh, an owner who acted as if he knew nothing about football and just signed enormous checks because he was very new to the game. Uh, he entered a situation where, you know, you had Peter Kenyon as chief executive and then de facto director of football were a couple agents that we all know very well. And Mourinho effectively had carte blanche. Here, he came in in very, very specific terms. Marina Granovskaya runs the club. Michael Amanalo has 
a huge role in his technical director, director of football, or whatever his title is. And Mourinho had to accept that. And so if that meant you got to keep Mata around for six months because we tell you to, that's what happens. If you have to keep David Luiz for a year, that's what happens. Is it fair to say that it's almost a bit humbling of Mourinho and, you know, something that we thought he might not accept? You can say it's humbling. You can maybe say that it's, um, it's, it shows a kind of greater level of maturity, I guess, a, def- a different level, a different stage in his career. I, I think what's interesting, actually, I'd love to know in terms of their transfer business, and I don't know the answer to it, I think Emanalo's job is completely separate to Mourinho's. I think Mourinho maybe has carte blanche on first-team signings, still. He doesn't. And if you, look at, if you look at what they did last summer. But Emanalo's main job is to run the player trading business, which now is I can, other I, I, I can tell you, I know... I know it's easy to put down Emanalo because when he arrived... No, 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 Jimmy, got, Jimmy, that's no, no, opposite. But what I'm, Jimmy, that's opposite. But, no, no, I, I know that. But what, but what I'm saying is it's a direct collaboration and if Emanalo feels strongly in a certain in, in a certain way for the good of the club, Mourinho has to has to defer to that. And he did defer to that. Well then that suggests that Mourinho has maybe lost a little bit of the, the headstrong, kind of bullish, dictatorial, authoritarian side to him that, that he certainly had in the first tenure at Chelsea and he probably needed in his first tenure at Chelsea. Well, and that maybe now he is more prepared to work within a structure. Something definitely changed about Mourinho at Real Madrid. That that has affected Mourinho in a number of ways. What happened at Real Madrid, and whether some of one of those one of those ways is positive, and that he is now more able to to cope with the kind of the political side of his job that you get with any managerial job. I don't know, but certainly the evidence would suggest that it is. The only option he had after he left Real Madrid was Chelsea. There was nowhere else available to him. You don't think he could have bullied his way into United if he'd really wanted to? No, no, I'll tell you what, if he could have bullied his way into United, he would have. He was desperate to get into United. They thought he was below his di- their dignity. Because of the way things ended in Real Madrid? No, well, because of his whole career. Because one of the things that struck me too is I, I, I tried to ask myself what's different about this Chelsea team from, from previous Mourinho teams. And one thing that stands out for me is the player development as well. And, and I'm thinking specifically of, of, of three guys, Hazard, Aspiliqueta, who Aspiliqueta was basically a winger playing right back, and then he turns into a defensive fullback. So Hazard, Aspiliqueta, and Cesc this season. And I wonder if maybe because Mourinho wasn't squabbling and fighting and politicking within the club, he also had a lot more time to do what he does quite well, which is helping these guys grow individually. And again, that's not something we've seen at Real Madrid or at Inter Milan where players grew substantially under Mourinho. I think in the past, he might have said with Asbel Coetta in particular, you know what, he's a, he's a winger, I don't want him, I want a full-back, and so not concentrate. I mean, these are different times. We're in an era of financial fair play, where Chelsea are trying to get on board with, with that. He's got to work with the resources he's got, and, and he's done a brilliant job. I mean, I, I must admit, I, I wasn't a fan of Hazard's. Tremendous skills, but never once looked back over his own shoulder. It was all about him. Mourinho's got him working for the team, and that's he's, he's become twice the player. That's a credit to Mourinho. Oh, yeah, yeah. To... Hazard was young. Hazard was young. I, and that, Hazard, that ability okay, to t- think I'm... not just about your skill, but about your duty to the team is one you, you learn as you mature with, with a manager who gives you the space to do Hazard's that. young, but he's kind of an old 24 in the sense that this is his seventh season as a starter in a major European league. I mean, he won two Player of the Year awards in France. He was he won the double in France. You know, he worked with demanding coaches in France as yeah, well. Yeah, but that, I think that underlines my point, really, because why would any other coach think we need more from Hazard? Because he's award-winning and he's still 
you know, difficult to get the ball off. He's still an asset in the team, even if he's someone who doesn't bust a gut to, to get the ball back. Mourinho, one of the things Mourinho's very good at, is just always wanting that little bit more. And we're talking about Mourinho softening and maybe having less control. But the fact that he could see a player who was award-winning, like Hazard, and say, no, that's not enough, you need to do more, and to get it out of him... Is, is, a, is the triumph of a man-manager. Now, the flip side of that, Rory, is that he didn't or couldn't or chose not to do it with other pretty darn good players like Andre Shorla and Mohamed Salah. Well, well the, Salah, the Salah deal is, if, if you assume that it, it cannot be the case that Chelsea spent 11 million quid on someone just to stop Liverpool signing him, the Salah deal has to be one of the weirdest transfers of the last two or three years. Shurla can kind of see how they decided they could get a good price from Wolfsburg for him, and he, he was he was kind yeah, of a but, substitute. But, but he wasn't playing, he hardly played. I mean, that, that's my point. Like if uh, That's what I don't understand. At the end of the season, everybody's tired, Oscar looks like a corpse out there, and you have to go and, and, and become more defensive. Well, you have this like hyperactive, large, athletic German guy who runs himself into the ground when asked to, and you never played him. And that's part of the reason why you know, Oscar plays too many minutes, and then, and then Oscar t- becomes ethereal. Yeah, no, I agree with you, but I, I, asked, strange, Mourinho that, I, I asked Mourinho that uh, last week, I think, and said, you know, would you, would you for next season, to avoid that need to switch from artistic to, to strategic, would you want to have an extra couple of players in your squad? And he said no. You know, the players are there at Chelsea, he just doesn't use them. It's, it's not like people say, oh, but what, poor Mourinho is a small this, squad. This is one of the things that people, again, underestimate. There's still a, a squad in transition. I mean, when they got rid of Mourinho for the first time, the recruitment policies were all over the place. They wanted to play more beautiful football, all that nonsense. And they did. Well, yeah, and they didn't, they didn't win anything. Brilliant. Well, so, except for a Champions League, a Europa League, and they also won the double scoring 103 goals along the way. Yeah, that was that was the tail end of the Mourinho effect. I'm talking the last five years. It was 2009-10. Which is the last time they won something. Well, maybe they had a pretty good manager back then, too. They, they had a very good manager, and they jumped, they jumped a couple of good managers. I'm not saying that. It's, it was all coming from the boardroom. All the stuff that they won, whether, whether it's, it was under Carlo or under Di Matteo or under Benitez, it was done in, in the Mourinho way. What they're trying to do now is, is they are having to, and Peter Chet said this last week, that they are now having to bring to another generation. And, you know, next season there will be Terry, but that will be it. All of the others of those those core players will have gone. Drogba, Drogba might still be around, but you know the Didier Drogba that we see now is not is not a player who can command a place in the Chelsea team on anything other than sentiment. When Mourinho come in this time, it was a very different squad to the sorted ones. I mean, the likes of Mata, which obviously would never figure in a, a, a Mourinho team. David Luiz, and right across the squad, there were players that Mourinho doesn't fancy. He, he, in his first year, he got he got rid of some of them. It shows that how many players in the squad he didn't trust by how many times he started the same eleven. This summer, that process will continue. They will bring players in, and next season will be a much more Mourinho-style squad, and that should scare the rest of the Premier League. And space for David Silva with Spurs having committed defenders forward. Aguero making the run. It's Sergio Aguero and Manchester City lead 1-0. Let's move to North London. Alison, I'm going to start out with this number because... I don't have to add numbers. No, no, you don't have to add. Who would you rather have managing your team? Pochettino or some combination of AVB and Terrible Tim? 
I'll answer Pochettino because he comes from Southampton. Rory obviously would because Pochettino's from Argentina. Well, you know what I'd say? I'd say, what an inane argument because the sample, we're going to get to the, 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 you know, sort of the records as Tottenham managers and the sample's too small. Okay, well, why not? Last year, with all the controversy and all the rubbish and without Ryan Mason, they got 69 points and without Ryan Mason. Okay. This season, Ryan Mason. This season, they have 58 points with three games left. So they haven't moved forward in terms of points total. They're they're likely to move backwards in terms of points. And I know it's just one lens to look at it, but all the indicators: Pochettino, bright manager. You know, they didn't lose any significant players over the summer. They added a little bit, still managed to make a profit in the in in, in the transfer market. And they had the same guy all season long, right? Stability is supposed to be good. Yeah, but you, why well, do they no, go no, backwards no, in a lo- bad Premier League? No, you're looking at the wrong prism here because what is the correct prism? Well, the, because Pochettino came in and he 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 has a very definite specific way of working. He had he, he inherited a bunch of players that just weren't fit enough and they didn't fit together either. He had quite a lot on his plate and he had the Europa League, so he was juggling that competition to an extent. Did quite well in it. And then, he, the and then he had to get all those two? players fit. The players were not the players were not fit for his system. There were too many that were similar. Identify who could play in what place, how they could work together as a unit. There was an, he had, I think he did a fantastic job in going into Spurs, which is a very demanding club and quite with a quite controlling owner, to change things, to make it work under his to have the faith to not sort of try and muddle through, but to say, no, we're going we're gonna to do it this way, we're going to do it this way, they're, they're going to keep working hard. Look back, we were so surprised that he would, he would change you know, ten, nine, ten players for a Europa League game. P- people were not doing that and he was getting to know them and at the same time bringing through the younger players. Obviously, Ryan Mason springs to mind most of all and Harry Kane. And it came together briefly, all too briefly perhaps, but they were, they were for a while the team to watch in the Premier League because it all seemed to be working and it was thanks to a manager with a very strong sense of the discipline he wanted to impose and what he how he wanted to run the club. What happened to Spurs was it was all a madness and it was all a whirlwind and it was really exciting and as soon as they stepped off domestic cup run and the Europa League run it's, it's like when you get off a, a merry-go-round you, you just all fall over. It, it, that, it didn't help them the winding down and for some reason now people are questioning, oh do they want to even qualify for the Europa League? And his objectives have become curious and he's been told to wear a suit and suddenly it all feels like the old spurs where little he's things are getting to too suit. big. Yeah. Really? I did not know that. Do, I mean, do, don't you think the key to this question is the fact that they have gone through, you know, sort of Villas Boas and Sherwood last year and the chaos and the carnage that surrounded that? And he's coming, he's lasted a year. Well, all right, you know, sort of there's, there's your first objective. Because remember, in the autumn when things weren't going too well, people were speculating whether he'd make Christmas. You know, I don't believe that Pochettino will be the greatest manager that ever operated in this division. But certainly, he's someone Tottenham should persist with, at least next year and maybe the year after, to see if he can get some stability in a club that has been all over the place. Well, for yeah, or you write off the whole season. If you get rid of Pochettino this summer, mm. you, 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 you just completely write off the whole season. No, that's the problem. Was- a lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. you bring it? Oh, come on. It's true. There's always other alternatives. I don't think they will get rid of Pochettino, and I was deliberately being a little bit provocative here with them. Roy, I, I can imagine uh, you have a bit of simpatico for, for the Poch, but ultimately, though, if you had the chaos and the nonsense of last season, do, do these points totals not matter? And also, given how this season was supposedly a weaker a weaker Premier League, uh, do, do you think that they're playing better as a unit? Do you think he's done a better job with these players than Sherwood and AVB? There is probably more sign of them being about to do something. It's easy to see what he's trying to do than it was with, certainly the Boas, where it all, by the end it was all kind of a mess. Although you should remember that Villas-Boas did have an excellent first season. There's no question about that. His first season I also think, sorry, season. not to be revisionist here, but I think the issue with Villas-Boas in the end was Villas-Boas. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't the work he did. I think Villas-Boas is a brilliant, is a brilliant manager, and he's a classic guy who, when he grows up, I, I think will be an outstanding manager if people still believe in him. Sure, we changed quite a bit of things from, from Villas-Boas and a lot of people laughed at him and whatever but they still ended with more points than this season and he didn't have Harry Kane just kind of you know shooting and scoring every time he hit the ball which is another no, luxury true. Pochettino had this year which neither of those two guys had last year no, I, th- I think you're. I think you're right, and I, you're quite right. I do. I really like Pochettino. I think. I think he's we an all excellent do. manager. I think he's better than. He's a better manager than Sherwood. But I would agree that this season hasn't been quite as positive as it looked like it might be at certain points. But at the same time, I think what's what's crucial for Spurs is that they don't fall into that trap. And just because they might have been wrong to sack this person or that person or whatever, doesn't mean that the way to solve it is by sacking yet another person. I think that no, they the won't. key thing for Spurs is to say, right, well, this season's kind of been a par finish. This is probably roughly where Spurs deserve to be and where things like sort of wage bills and what have you suggest that they would be. So let's see how he does in the second season. Can he build on it? Is he going somewhere? That's, that's what's crucial. And it's a horrible kind of political jargon phrase, but... It- You've got to check the direction of travel, and, if, and it feels as though Pochettino is working towards something. Let's see how he does next season, and I think if Spurs can do that, that in itself is a remarkably significant piece of progress. We've talked about City a lot this year. Uh, they did win this game. I think there's a few little bright spots, which maybe nobody has noticed, like my mate Alexander Kolarov's been, I think, outstanding the last couple of games, but presumably nobody cares. Has anything changed about Pellegrini's position? Do, do we still think that, that he's going? Do we have any idea what Mansour and Haldun are thinking? 
Nah, I don't think we've got any idea. But I'm angry about City. They're one of the best squads ever assembled in the Premier League and they've so underperformed, it's untrue. Two second. They're still underperformed. They've still underperformed. They, they, you know, they, they let Chelsea win. They formed the guards of honour for Chelsea since the ball kicked off in August. The game kicked off in August. They have really underperformed. And I'll tell you what, if they don't change the regime there, it, it, you know, it, it, it's just it's just scandalous. The, when you say the regime, do you mean the manager or do you mean Cheeky and... Uh and Ferrer. The manager, the end the Catalan experiments, it's an absolute mess there, and they should be doing so much better. The squad's aging, they haven't got enough English players, they've got financial fair play problems. It's carnage. Yeah, that, that, that is absolutely demented. We've talked about this before, the, the way that squad was constructed age-wise. They, I, they can't sell any of these guys and get money because they all make too much money and they're all the wrong yeah, age yeah. and they all have long-term contracts. It's, I mean, Yeah, the idea was that they would be in peak their peak form to win the Champions League and what's really embarrassing about City is how dreadfully they're performed in Europe. I don't think it's embarrassing to finish second in the Premier League. I think it's embarrassing to have no well, impact in Europe if they're whatsoever. Built, if they're built to win the Champions League now and you still have all these guys under contract, Rory, why not keep Pellegrini another season and go for it, strengthen what you can through your limits, and, and presumably there'll be some level of financial fair play restriction, and just go and win now rather than trying to rebuild. Because the longer you stick with this plan, the more expensive it's going to be when you eventually have to kind of overturn it. But if you win again. the Champions League next year, you're not going to care, are you? I think they're a long way even with this side. I don't actually think that City's squad is quite as talented as everybody thinks it is, but um, I think with, um, with this squad, you're still a long way from winning the Champions League, so you're going to need to invest a huge amount of money to get to the same level as Real and Barca and Bayern, money that they can't invest as a financial fair play, and then you're still going to have the problem of of having to rebuild at some point. I think there is a, there is a logic to sticking with Pellegrini for another year. If you assume their plan, and it is just their plan, it's not me saying that, I think it's going to happen, but if you assume their plan is to get Guardiola in 2016, they basically need someone to, to hold things together and try and get Pep, well, which is what they think they can do. Well, 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 why you might do they, as well have Pellegrini I, doing that as anyone else. I, I, I love this idea. I, I love this. The, I, okay, I'm not, I, I mean, I think Chiki Bagiri-Stein has a track record, although he also did sign Dmitry Chigrinsky, and I believe he signed Karrison too, which look him up on Google, and that's a fun one. But this idea that, like, oh, let's keep these guys here so Pep will come, where did Pep go when he left Barcelona? He went to a place where he didn't speak the freaking language, where there were no Catalans, no Catalan food. Obviously, Pep doesn't and, need to have his and, mates around him. And, and he tells anyone who listen that the three clubs he fancied managing when he left Barcelona were Bayern Munich, Arsenal, and Man United. There's four clubs. You forgot Brescia. Yeah, well, he's always said he'll go back and manage them. And you know, someone, someone who was, was, um, was, was good contacts with him. I asked him what, what, what City would have to do to get Guardiola in next year. He said, find 50 years of history quick. <laughs> there you go. It's not going to happen. Right, moving on to our debate this week. I'm assuming everybody's across what's been happening in Newcastle through the excellent reporting from George Culkin. There's two issues. There's sort of general Newcastle, malaise, will they go down, blah, blah, blah. Of course, they, they lost to Leicester City at the weekend. But I saw something which in... 20 years of covering football as a player, as, as a fan and, and, and as a journalist, I think maybe I've seen one other time. And that is a manager accusing, and that would be John Carver, accusing a player, Mike Williamson, of getting himself intentionally sent off. To me, that is one of the most serious accusations that you can make against one of your employees. I don't know what to think. I, for me, I don't care. That happens. I go to Carver. I say, Carver, can you back this up or get Williamson to admit it? No? Okay, fine. 
you're out. I don't ever want to see you here again. Don't bother coming to the Northeast, right? Because that is completely unacceptable. And you, you know what? The worst thing is, it, it, right, it's a daft tackle. Apparently, uh, Curver leads into him about how poor he was and how little effort he was putting into. So, <laughs> he overcompensates. I mean, you know, the, the, the worst thing is, that, you know, you look at that tackle and say, oh, he was off the pitch and all that. I could see myself doing that sort of tackle, even at Sunday League. Daft. A bit overexcited. A bit, you know, it's, it's one of them. But the accusation is just, I mean, who'd have thought? Who'd have thought, after earlier on in the week, what Nigel Pearson said, and, you know, the, the whole ostrich thing, it wouldn't be the stupidest thing said at the King Power <laughs> no, Station that week? <laughs> we'll be no, getting to No, but the worst that. thing about what Carver said wasn't, I agree with you, it's a dreadful thing to say, but the worst thing was that he said he thought his defender got himself sent off deliberately because he did not have the stomach for the difficulties in the final few games of the season implies that it was it wasn't a, a spur of the moment deliberation it was a it was, it was a, you know he thought about it quite a lot and thought i really can't face playing for this team anymore it indicates just how bad things are in the dressing room no manager should let the world know how bad it's got and it indicates that carver himself believes that the last few games of the season are going to be absolutely dreadful it was an astonishing statement right we're, we're i think we're all kind of predisposed to to liking john carver because he's a humble dude who nobody'd heard of beforehand kind of he's like a fan on the bench isn't he and there's a there's a a type of sympathy with that I'm not entirely sold on it I don't really want a fan on the bench How can he get away with saying this? Should he get away with saying this? Should he be punished for it? I mean, his punishment's being manager of Newcastle, isn't it? <laughs> I, I don't know I mean, maybe Ashley doesn't want to pay for somebody I mean, he won't be managing Newcastle next year no, I, no, well, why don't make Shola Amiobi manager these last three games or something? Because honestly, I, I I don't see how a player can go and look at that guy in the face after I, what I, he did. I agree. It's 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 it reminds me of the Phil Brown, you know, sort of halftime raw looking on the pitch at the well, SR. Players out there, you know, it's and and after that the players just Phil Brown though. I have to say this. At least that, and it obviously wasn't at a least great motivational tans, At least Phil Brown was tans. <laughs> no, but, but what I'm saying is he left the players out there on the pitch. At least it was a collective team thing. Uh, I think his logic, as he explained it, was, you know, you guys are going to be out there in front of the fans. You've got to take your abuse. You're letting them down. It's fine. But you're not singling out an individual and accusing him of being some kind of traitor Benedict Arnold. I mean, that, that, that's appalling. It's, quite, it's massively questioning someone's professional integrity, and that is, like you say, I've, I've never heard of that happening before either. The, the interesting, interesting thing with Carver is that he met some fans in his office on Friday and seemed, and they, they, they asked him why, he'd, why Williamson was continually being allowed to play hopeless long balls forward. And Carver said, oh, I've told him not to, but he keeps doing it. So this is obviously something that... There is obviously something between Carver and Williamson, and Carver... Now, there's, there's one interpretation of it which is quite positive, which is that Carver's being honest and frank and open and, and saying this, this is how bad things have got. The other interpretation is that he's basically unable to stop the slide and he's, decided, he's picked out a player he doesn't like and sold him down the river. Right. It's been obviously, we, we've commented on this all season long. It's been a rough year for, for Nigel Pearson. He's lost his cool. He had the bizarre incident with, uh, was it James MacArthur? He, he had the thing where he told some fans to um, go away and die. Except he didn't say go away, and then he had that the incident with, uh, with with the fan and the bizarre the whole ostrich case after the Chelsea defeat midweek. If you get a chance to go on YouTube and see it, it made my skin crawl because it was so awkward. Now my take on this is that he's not a bully. Actually, he's a nerd in the body. He's a nerd who's socially awkward and who I think is a really intelligent guy, but who has trouble communicating. His emotional intelligence is quite low. 
And he happens to be in the body of a guy who looks like a bully and a thug, and he happened to have been a star athlete. And so when he goes and he tries to put somebody down and bully them in a press conference, he comes across looking like a fool. I groan that this made the public domain. You know, you know, it's not unusual in press conference situations or in private situations for uh, reporters and people in football to have frank exchanges and to have, um, you know, for, for for things to be said that perhaps don't look so great. One one of the points in this is uh, the the tirade was directed to Ian Baker, who probably has the closest relationship with Nigel Pearson. And, and all of a sudden, Ian is embarrassed by it all, not because he was on the receiving end of it, but he doesn't like becoming the story, and he would have handled it himself. Well, the best thing that could have happened there is, um, you know, afterwards, if he was upset, when Pearson left, to grab the press officer and say, I'm not taking that, you know, get him out here. Let's straighten this out now, which is the sort of thing that normally happens. He may have done that. We don't yeah, know. Yeah, we yeah. don't know if he spoke to Pearson personally as well. Yeah. It, it's a massive storm that he up, and then other people rushing to defend him. You know what? It makes people, reporters, um, it makes people in football look like like whinging weenies, frankly. And we've all had, you know, I, I think that's one thing that, that uh, perhaps the, the reader, the listener doesn't understand, that... When you write something and when you say something, often it'll get back to the people involved and they will tell you in, in no uncertain terms that um, what do you think of you next time. And you, you've got to be able to front that and see that. And it happens all the time. It's part of being the job. I, I, I w- w- One row with one uh, person in football that I looked at my phone, 27 minutes we shouted at each other. I mean, I mean, real shouting at each other. Bad language to lot. And the thing is, it's part of the job. And this comes out, and it left me feeling... A bad taste in the mouth. What what happens in the press room should stay in the press room unless it's the stuff that's meant for public consumption. I don't think it does it does football or the industry any good. And, and, and you know, so I don't think anywhere it's a Nigel Pearce and after it. If you cut somebody down, you shut them up, and you, as a manager, have the upper have the upper hand. Clearly, this is not something Pearson's capable of doing, bullying people, because when he does, he looks silly. And that brings us to what happened, um, I guess it was the next press conference. Matt Dickinson wrote about this, I thought, quite eloquently in our paper, which is Pat Murphy from from the BBC, a uh, Midlands-based reporter, came in and he basically confronted Pearson. It lasted seven minutes and 22 seconds. I described it as basically pretty grotesque. Because I know, I mean, Dicko had an issue there where he felt that, you know, Pat Murphy wasn't speaking for the entire press corps in this country, and that's fine. I just felt so uncomfortable because it looked to me like after what happened, Pearson was told and realized, okay, I need to be on my best behavior. I can't get angry. I can't snap. And he's got this journalist who basically comes in and for seven minutes and 22 seconds asks him all those questions, which make him so uncomfortable. Well, he didn't ask questions. He told him what he should have done and how he should be feeling. Like what? No, he said he, he didn't the, ask questions, Pat Murphy. He told Nigel Pearson what he'd done wrong. It was, a, it was a speech. It was a speech. It was. And this is within the context a of a press off. conference. It was a ticking off. It wasn't questions. I, I, I thought the greatest moments in, in amongst like sort of cringing under the desk tin hat on is when he said it takes two to tango, <laughs> and Pearson goes, "It does." People look at the business and they're always criticising us for all manner of things. But when when they saw and listened to that whole sequence of events, that it's beyond parody. The whole thing is, you know, it should have stayed in there. It's embarrassing. I've heard from very good sources that Pat, well, anyone who was there really, said that Pat was upset afterwards because he was expecting the press to pat him on the back and say thank you for defending our honour and he was ignored because he just judged it wrong. 
I don't know. I just find it the, the kind of media process. I'm surprised it's interested to anybody. But yeah, everyone. We've all been dressed down by managers, and often in more legitimate ways, and probably and probably more eloquent ways than Pearson did to Ian Baker. I don't think it needed to be. I don't think it needed a second chapter. He apologised. He realised he'd misjudged it. He is Pearson is not an easy man to warm to. There is a there have been a litany of kind of incidents this season, and I say he is he is very kind of fractious and a bit kind of abrasive to deal with. He's not. He, I don't think he helps himself. It's a, it's a slow talking, like the PE teacher who doesn't realise that PE is not an actual subject. <laughs> the way he talks to you like that, that, that really gets to me. He, he apologised. He, he made a mistake. He apologised. And you just leave it. Like, we're all, we're all grown up. This constant desire to see people kind of grovel is ridiculous. How about some quick hits? Liverpool beat Queen's Park Rangers uh, 2-1, and in theory, at least, the Champions League hopes are still alive. Tony, what do you make of the guys, and I believe it was uh, Alisson and Rory, uh, who paid for the plane flying the Rogers out Rafa in banner overhead? Was it the Naples supporters branch? Whatever you think of Rogers... Rogers made that funny joke, saying Rafa's agent was flying the plane, which I thought was so original. My jokes. Whatever you think of... Rogers, it's like to even suggest that Rafa has the most minuscule chance of getting the job at Liverpool under this ownership is to completely misunderstand what's happened, what's going on, and what will happen. Not going to happen. You know what? It's 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 just madness. It's stupid. And I'll tell you what, Liverpool fans, they get worse. Would he want it? He's <laughs> walked there. He had to maybe swim there. He's wing walked there. <laughs> Manchester United lose at home to West Brom, which makes it three straight defeats and takes some of the gloss off the Funhal revival. But then you notice that West Brom only had 20% of the ball and the goal came on a deflected shot. Rory, is this a classic case where the result is actually a big, fat, Pulis lie? Uh, no, not really. I think United were basically quite ordinary. They obviously had chances and they could have scored, but I don't think they played well particularly, and they were punished for it. So, no, I don't think it's a lie. I'm sure if you played the game again in the exact same circumstances, the result might not be the same. But that is... I've always found that a curiously kind of abhorrent logic. It doesn't, that doesn't really matter. Uh, West Brom did what they needed to do, and they got the result. So, United kind of got punished and deserved to be punished. Ha ha, Louis. Rory says you deserve to lose, so there. Arsenal stomp all over Hull as Casorla and Sanchez steal the show. Alison, are they really that far from competing for the title next year? What do they need? Well, most people will tell you they need a, a goalkeeper, although I I don't see why Ospina... Um, has he been so average? I don't think so. Give him a chance to become a world-class keeper next season. So I don't think they need much. What they probably need more than anything is to poach Chelsea's physio team because if they'd had everyone fit, most people fit for most of the season, they might have won the title. Oh. The Sherwood effect continues to bear fruit as Aston Villa overcome Everton 3-2. Uh, Tony? It's your choice. Would you rather praise the underappreciated terrible Tim or weigh in on the free-falling rakish Roberto? I think it's rather praised terrible Tim. I think uh, I think what he's done is shows all his qualities and the qualities that he has as a great captain. He knows how to motivate a football team. He knows how to get people going. He knows how to enthuse them. The big question is, can he continue that over a season? Has he got the has he has he got the uh, gravitas to become a proper manager? I wonder. Sunderland trip up Southampton and keep their hopes of avoiding relegation intact. They're one point from safety with a game in hand, albeit against Arsenal. Rory, is this the advocate effect, or did Southampton decide to put their feet up? I think Southampton have lost that little bit of intensity that you get when you're, you have nothing to play for, particularly when there's no kind of real aim for your season. Uh, Sunderland are get, look a little bit galvanised, but the problem is still scoring goals. 
whether they can score enough to stay up. I think they need probably four more points to relegate Newcastle and survive themselves. I'm not sure if they've got the firepower to do that. It's playoff time in the Championship after dramatic final day, which saw Steve McLaren's Derby fall to pieces. Not for the first time. Alison, it's Middlesbrough versus Brentford and Norwich versus Ipswich. You've studied the Championship quite closely in the previous 24 hours. Who is favoured and why? Um, Brentford are favourite simply because they shouldn't be and momentum is with them and they have nothing to lose and it would you've got four club, three clubs there who are prepared for the Premier League with the, the stadium and the fan base Brentford Stadium two standing ends uh, no signal in the press room four pubs lots of pubs it's such a glorious glorious story and, and you, how can you top someone waving goodbye at Wembley victorious but knowing for most of the season he, he, he's not going to be, be kept in the job anyway and talk about Mark Warburton of course who's, who's been very dignified throughout I have, I have a question for you Gab well thank you I can't figure out apparently what's going wrong with AC Milan are they really valued at £800 million is Berlusconi finally going to sell this is one of the most mysterious things that have been going on basically for the whole weekend um, you We've had the Italian media with cameras tracking Berlusconi coming in and out of his house, going to hotels to meet these two uh, sort of broker intermediary types. One of them is uh, named B. Chabol, uh, known as Mr. B. Uh, he's an intermediary from Thailand of some kind, and he has an ownership group that includes uh, uh, Tony's mates at Doyen, or Dicko's mates at Doyen, I should say, the third-party owners or third-party investors, as they like to be uh, called. You thought third-party ownership was illegal? Well, yeah, who knows? And uh, the other people they're meeting is, uh, is a group led by Mr. Lee, a guy named Richard Lee, who's a Hong Kong former Ferrari dealer made good. And uh, he represents these big Chinese investors. The really bizarro part is that originally they announced that they were selling 60% of the club for roundabout uh, $450 million. Pounds. Uh, then Berlusconi came out and said, yeah, yeah, that's the price, but I'm not selling 60%. I'm only going to sell 49% because I still want to be in control. Now, why in the world somebody would give him hundreds of millions of pounds so that he could just go and spend the money and they wouldn't have any say in the matter is beyond me. So watch this space. This is going to be fun. If you haven't subscribed on iTunes and Player FM uh, for Android, please do so. Many, many thanks to my guest today, Rory Smith, down a British telecom line from uh, Yorkshire or someplace like that. Alison Rudd here in the studio and Tony Evans as well. Check out thetimes.co.uk on your digital device. If you're a member, you'll get exclusive football, rugby and cricket highlights free as part of your subscription. If you're not a member yet... Don't panic. Do not despair. You can take our one-pound digital trial today. Just search Time Sport online. Bye-bye. Your subscription to The Times and The Sunday Times now comes with access to every Barclays Premier League goal. Refresh your app, choose your team, accept notification, and you're away.